You know, generosity is a matter of the heart. The man of God, the woman of God, who is generous with little, will be generous with much. We've seen this time and time again throughout history. William Wilberforce, who's one of my all-time favorite heroes, which I feel like I say that every week, don't I? I have lots and lots of heroes. Okay. This man helped abolish the slave trade in Great Britain. As a politician, he was a wealthy man, a wealthy man but the vast majority of his resources he gave away. He gave away to the poor, to hospitals, to the sick, to missions, and to the church. James Cash Penny, founder of J.C. Penny, was a man who was quick to give away his resources to bless others. He gave money away to hospitals and to the poor, and then the Great Depression hit. When he lost everything in the Great Depression, he still made a commitment that no matter what, he's going to be generous. I read at one point that he was giving away 90% of his resources for the sake of missions and ministry. This week I discovered that Hobby Lobby, 8% of every dollar spent, not of their profits, just every dollar that is spent goes directly to missions. And I want you to know that my wife is single-handedly fulfilling the Great Commission. <laughs> so whether you're rich or whether you're poor, your generosity is on full display by how you spend your money. This morning, I want you to see the motivation behind the giving that you and I are to have. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're in the middle of a sermon series called Pray, Give, Go. And over these three weeks, we're looking in the New Testament at three ways all of us together can be a part of fulfilling the Great Commission. Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 10, verse 2, where Jesus said, pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers. And so what we do, we challenged our church to set your alarms on your phones to 10-2. And every morning at 10-02, you pray Luke 10-2. You pray to the Lord of the harvest to raise up workers to send out into the field. Well, today we're going to look at another way that we get to join God in his mission of redeeming the nations and our neighbors, and it's through our giving. Money is one of the most addressed topics or themes in the Bible because God cares about us, and because he cares about us, he wants us to know how to steward our resources. God wants to equip you on how to manage your money, and so the Bible is saturated with truths and principles that you and I are to apply on how we handle the resources that he has entrusted to us. Well, in Acts chapter 11, there were some prophets who predicted that by the Spirit, there would be a severe famine throughout the entire world. Well, it happened. A famine struck the land, especially the land of Judea, and many of the believers in Jerusalem, they were suffering. First century historian Josephus wasn't a believer as far as we can tell, but he did record this. He says that at this time there were many people who died of starvation. 
So the Apostle Paul, he writes to the Corinthian church and he calls upon them to care for their brothers and sisters in Christ who were not only facing persecution for their faith in Christ, but they were facing difficult financial strain. The believers in Jerusalem, they were extremely poor. The Corinthians, however, they were kind of like us. They were doing relatively well. They were living in peace and in prosperity. But then in chapter 8, Paul reminds the church of the commitment that they had made a year earlier to send money to the believers. So since money is a sensitive topic and he's wanting to lead them to make sure to fulfill their commitment, he's very tender and gentle. And he reminds them of the commitment that they made. And he tenderly walks them through the process for how the money is going to go from Corinth to Jerusalem. Now, again, this is money going to people they've never met. And as the crow flies, it's 900 miles from Corinth to Jerusalem. And they're going to be sending these resources to help these poor believers who are scattered there. So he gives them instruction. Here's his plan. Go ahead and get the collection ready. Hey, take up your offering. Get the money ready. I and Timothy, we're going to send Titus and two other men. And they're going to come and they're going to collect the money. And then in verses 16 through 24 of chapter 8, he's speaking to their integrity. He says, these are men of character, these are men of honor, and they're going to take this money to Jerusalem. He gives some specifics of why in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 20, he says this, we're taking this precaution so that no one will criticize us about this large sum that we are administering. Indeed, we're giving careful thought to do what is right, not only before the Lord, but also before people. You see, Paul's wanting to ensure the church that he and Timothy and Titus and these two other men, that they're above board, they're above reproach. These are men who who are going to make sure that no one can lob an accusation of financial impropriety or misappropriation of church funds at him or anyone else. Then he gets to chapter 9, and Paul points to to the gospel as to why we are to give. You see, giving is never to be an afterthought and is never to be an obligation, but rather it's an overflow of love and gratitude to God for what he has done for us in the gospel. Notice in the text, these five gospel motivations for giving. The first is this, the gospel compels us to give eagerly, to give eagerly. Verse two, Paul says, for I know your eagerness and I boast about you to the Macedonians. Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Like a proud parent boasting in their children's accomplishments. Paul is boasting in the Corinthian church's willingness to give to the financial need in Jerusalem. As believers, they were facing poverty because of persecution and the famine. Paul has been rallying the churches. He's been wanting to gather these churches he's planted. And he's saying, guys, financially, I need you to step up. We have brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem who are poor and who are struggling. And so I want you to join me in financially supporting them. Now, a year earlier, the Corinthians, under the leadership of Titus, they were eager. They were excited about giving to the needs of these people. Now, Paul was even boasting of the Corinthians' eagerness to give to the Macedonian churches. 
The churches in Philippi and Thessalonica and Berea and others who were poor, he's stirring them up and saying, listen to how the Corinthians are stepping up to give. Verse two, your zeal has stirred up most of them. You see, the posture of great commission giving is eagerness. There's to be an enthusiastic zeal in our attitudes of why we give. Well, why do we give? Well, the answer is found in the gospel. Jesus was eager to come and give his life for us. He wasn't forced. He wasn't coerced. He wasn't manipulated. Jesus did not have the Eeyore complex where he was like, well, if no one else is going to go, then I guess I'll have to go and give my life. That was not his approach. Jesus was eager to give his life. He was glad to lay down his life. And he yearned to be willing to serve mankind through his substitutionary death. Jesus was eager to come and care for us in the gospel. Which means, therefore, that when you give towards the Great Commission, you're giving for the advancement of the gospel so that those who don't know Christ will come to know Christ means this. You're giving is worship. It is a way to worship the Lord. You are eager to give towards this mission of making Jesus big. You see, worship is not constrained to just raising your hands and singing. And it's not constrained to sitting still and listening to the word of God. It's not constrained just to your your closet where you get alone with the Lord and his word. Worship includes your giving. It's an eagerness to be a part of investing financially in the work of God. Which means when the time comes at close of worship, it's like, yes! We get to worship by giving. Give me that basket over here. Let's worship. Right? There's an eagerness here, verse 2. In Exodus 36, Moses, he summoned these skilled carpenters and construction workers and these artists, and they're going to build a tabernacle. Well, one day, the craftsmen come to Moses and like, hey, Moses, we have too many supplies. The people keep giving, and we have too much. And so in Exodus 36, verse 6, is after Moses gave an order, they sent a proclamation throughout the camp. Let no man or woman make anything else as an offering for the sanctuary. So the people stopped. The materials were sufficient for them to do all the work. There was more than enough. Now imagine this happening. The people are so eager to be a part of what God is doing through this tabernacle, they just keep giving more and more and more stuff. And eventually they say, stop bringing your stuff. Now, listen, I believe the Bible is the word of God. It is inerrant. It has no mixture of error. When I get to this, I'm just like, oh my goodness, you're telling me you're telling people to stop giving? That'd be kind of like us setting up our deacons on the perimeter of our church with their arms crossed saying, hey, you can come in, but you're not giving. Keep your money to yourself. We have more than enough. You all have given way too much. You need to stop. I'm like, what? That's what's happening. The people, they were so eager to give to the work of the Lord. They just kept coming. Eventually, Moses says, y'all got to stop because you've brought us too much. You see, when you see what God is up to, there is an eagerness in which you want to be a part. You want to give. You want to be a part of financially investing in the work of the Lord. You see, you're giving, it's worship. 
You exalt Christ by leveraging your resources for the sake of his glory. It's a burden to no one when you follow Christ. It's a delight. It's a joy. I want you to see, secondly, the gospel compels us to give generously. To give generously. Verse 6. Paul says, the point is this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. You see, if you give little, you receive back little. If you give much, you receive back much. Paul says, just look at the farmer. The farmer who only sprinkles a few seeds, it's kind of a pretty weak crop, but the farmer who is bountiful, who spreads his seed far and wide, who is generous in his sowing, will reap back a rich harvest. You see, Paul is applying the principle of sowing and harvesting, verse 6, to great commission giving. You see, being cheap and tight-fisted, these are never to be the attitudes of believers because God has not been cheap or tight-fisted towards us. In fact, if you go back to 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. You see, generous giving is compelled by a generous God who gave us his best, his one and only Son, What's so amazing is the generosity of God to us in Christ. That he who was rich, who had the glory of heaven, he left it to humble himself and take on poverty. So that through his poverty, those who trust in him, we might become rich. You and I, we were once beggars, but now we are heirs. We were once in the outhouse, we're now in the penthouse. He who was rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. This is what God has done for us in the gospel. God displays his generosity to us through a bloodstained cross. God says, I want to show you how generous I am. I'm going to do it through the crushing of my own son on your behalf. That he who is rich became poor so that we who are poor might become rich. And you see, God's generosity towards us in the gospel, it then compels us to be generous towards advancing the gospel. The proof of God's love in us is seen in generous giving through us. John 3.16, that speaks to our motivation for giving. For God so loved the world that he, what? He gave. And he didn't give a tip. He gave us his best, his one and only son. God says, I'm going to be so generous towards you, I am going to give you myself. And in the gospel, we see a generous God who goes over the top and showing his love for us. That then compels us to be over the top generous in our giving towards his mission. Thirdly, I want you to see that the gospel compels us to give privately. Look at verse 7. Paul says, each person should do as he has decided in his heart. 
You see, when you come to Christ, you, you forfeit the right and you also forfeit the desire for the praise of man. You, you no longer uh, live and die for the recognition and the applause of people. No, 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 you, you long to give God all the glory. You, you can sing with the hymn writer, to God be the glory for great things he has done. So loved he the world that he gave us his son, who yielded his life and atonement for sin and opened the life gate that all may go in. You see, the same applies to our motivation for biblical giving. It's not for our recognition. It's not for the fame of our name. We don't give so people can praise us and say, wow, you are so generous. We don't give so we can have our name on a building. No, no, no. We give in secret. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, but when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secrets. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. You see, Christians give for the fame of God's name, not our own. We invest not so people can know us, not so people can praise us and we can receive man's applause, but instead, verse 7, each person should do as he has decided in his heart. We're not out to impress people with our giving record. If you're after the praise of men, you've already received your reward. But you see, if you seek the Lord and ask him, Lord, what is it you are calling me to give? You do it in your heart. You do it in private, in secret. And the Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Fourthly, I want you to see the gospel compels us to give freely. To give freely. Verse seven, each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion. That word for reluctantly, it means regret or sadness. This is an attitude of regret or sadness, probably because of the selfish desires that we don't get to spend the money on ourselves. But you see, believers, for us, we give willingly. We give freely, not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, not out of obligation. Does anyone else have children who does not enjoy doing chores, or is that just me? One of my children, whenever I ask them to do chores, I'm usually met with this. <sighs> Eye roll, arms crossed, right? Do I have to do this? And my response is, no. You don't have to, you get to. That's the posture that Paul's driving home here. Do I have to give? No. You don't have to, you get to. You get to be a part of this great work. You are willing, you are glad, you are happy to be a part of this great work. You're not only eager, but you are free to give out of the overflow of what God has done for you in his gospel. You see, God celebrates the heart of the sacrificial giver more than the sum of the gift. It doesn't matter how many zeros you add to the end of that check, God is not impressed. He's the one who gave it to you in the first place. He's far more interested in the condition of your hearts. What's your motivation? Why are you giving? 
Are you doing it for the fame of your name? Or are you doing it for his fame, for his glory, for the advancement of his kingdom and not your own? Now hear me on this. Your maturity as a believer, it's only going to go as far as your financial giving. What do you mean by that? You see, you can give without loving Jesus. But you can't love Jesus without giving. You can say you love Jesus, but if you've not allowed him to be Lord over your money, then he's not Lord over it all. What did Jesus say in Matthew 6? In verse 24, he says, no one can serve two masters. Either you will love one and hate the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. And yet the gospel reorients our lives around, not around us and not around our money, but around Jesus. Jesus becomes the center of our hearts and the center of our home and the center of our finances. And when we see how he freely and gladly and willingly gave himself up for us, it is then that we are freely and willingly and gladly willing to financially invest in his mission. I want you to see, fifth and finally, the gospel compels us to give hilariously. Is that a word? Yes, it's a word. 2 Corinthians 9, 7, since God loves a cheerful giver. That word for cheerful, it's connected to the word hilarious. This is someone who has already been won over. They're over the top, excited to give. Have you ever laughed to the point that you're crying? I mean, your stomach muscles hurt from laughing so hard. You're doubled over. And like there is just this, you can't even catch your breath. Like it is just overwhelming excitement and joy. That's what Paul's talking about here. It's a cheerful giver who is just hilarious. They're over the top. Their heart is already overwhelmed with gladness. And so they are happy to give away their resources. They're like, absolutely, because I just see what you've done in my life. God, I'm going to be a generous giver. I'm going to be a hilarious giver. I'm not going to be begrudging like this is my money and I have to give. No, no, no. I'm cheerful in my giving. And God says, yes, I love that. I love it when my children are cheerful. They're happy to give back to what I have already provided for them. It's an over-the-top joy in which I am happy, over-the-top excited over what God has done for me in the gospel. Well, so the question is, what makes our hearts ultimately glad? What ultimately makes your heart happy? The answer is the grace of Jesus. When you see all that God has done for you through his son, it overwhelms your heart. You're blown away by God's kindness that before we knew Jesus, we were dangling over the mouth of hell by a thread, and then Jesus comes and he rescues us. He takes our feet off of quicksand and places them upon the rock of Christ Jesus. He gives you purpose and meaning for why you exist. He forgives you of all of your sin. He promises you eternal life. He adopts you into his family and says you have an inheritance that is coming. This is all grace. And that is what makes our hearts hilarious. That's what makes our hearts 
cheerful. That's what makes our hearts ready to be over the top in our giving because of how generous and over the top God has been towards us through his son. Let me ask you a question though. Have you ever been fearful about your giving? Thinking, you know, God, I'm going to do this. I'm going to obey, but I just, the, the numbers don't add up. They just don't make sense. Then verse eight is your answer. The text says, and God is able. Three good words. Stamp them on your checkbook. God is able to do what? To make every grace overflow to you. So that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. Underline those three words. God is able. He is able to meet all of your needs, to make his grace overflow into your life so that you may excel in every good work. Ten times the word grace shows up in chapters eight and nine. And the God's grace, it overflows into your life in which he shows himself faithful as your provider, as your protector, as the one who goes before you. God is able, he is faithful, and he will meet all of your needs, verse eight. God is saying, trust me. With your finances, God is saying, trust me. Do I not own the cattle on a thousand hills? Am I not the one who gives you life and breath? Am I not the one who decides your day of birth and your day of death? Am I not the one who knows all things and holds all things together by the word of my voice? Trust me, even in your finances. So what's it mean for us as a faith family? I want you to hear me today. We are better together in our giving. You see, giving with Westwood means impacting the nations and our neighbors together. Let me show you a quick snapshot of how we impact the nations and our neighbors together. Uh, First, locally. These are not all of our ministries, but they are some that are here. It's not an exhaustive list, but let's take, for example, our, our benevolence ministry. It's a great gospel ministry. So if someone needs gas for their car, if they need food, if they need help keeping their lights on, we as a faith family want to be able to help take care of those in need. And we get to share the gospel with those whom we get to meet the needs that they have, whether it's food or diapers. We have backpack buddies. It's a ministry that our church is a part of in which we help feed hungry kids every weekend during the school year. It's an amazing ministry in which we get to come and be a part of meeting the need of these families where they don't have food to eat while they're at school. We have all kinds of local ministries like Kevin Derryberry Ministries, where God uses this man to preach the gospel amongst those who are forgotten by society. He goes into prisons and he preaches Jesus, an incredible evangelist. We are currently as a church supporting a missionary through the Fellowship of Christian Athletes at University of Alabama at Birmingham. Every week, this man is standing before the football team and other, other sport teams, and he is preaching the gospel. He's making much of Christ. He's making disciples. It's an incredible ministry. Then you've got a global component to our giving. We have the, the, what's called the cooperative program. And the cooperative program, I want to press pause there for just a minute because this is significant. This is the single greatest mission funding agency in the history of the church. And I'm not exaggerating. 
We are a part of that. There are around 40,000 Southern Baptist churches in the United States. The cooperative program is where all churches pull our money together into one big pot, if you can consider it like that. And then all that money, when it's brought together, it's then divided into different mission agencies, into different ways of, of going. So half of that money goes directly to the International Mission Board, where it is currently funding 5,000 international missionaries who are in every country in the world preaching the gospel. I saw a statistic recently that every 10 seconds, the INB is seeing someone came to, come to faith in Jesus. Every 30 seconds, they're seeing a church planted. It's an incredible mission force that you and I are a part of just by giving to Westwood. What's also amazing about the cooperative program is another portion of that goes to the North American Mission Board. This is a church planting ministry. It's an agency that is planting churches in hard to reach places right here in the United States and in Canada. And they are planting churches at an incredible rate of trying to push back against lostness. Another component of that, of that cooperative program money, is seminaries. There are six Southern Baptist seminaries located all throughout the United States that are currently training missionaries and pastors. When you were faithfully giving to your local church, you were helping pay for my seminary education. It's an incredible mission-sending agency. And there are so many other entities that the cooperative program helps support. And so the gospel goes forth and all the churches get to do it together. The, every Easter, we have what's called the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering. And every penny given to the Annie Armstrong Easter Offering goes directly to church planting right here in the United States. We have every Christmas, the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering. Every penny given to the Lottie Moon Christmas Offering goes directly to the field to advance the gospel amongst those who are unreached. We have Dulas Partners with David Johnson, who's a member here at Westwood. He's president and CEO of this organization. In fact, at 8.30, his wife was sitting right there this morning. He preaches for us periodically here on Sunday mornings. This mission sending agency is amazing. Last month, they've seen, they saw over 184,000 people come to faith in Jesus. 184,000. Most of them throughout sub-Saharan Africa. They saw over 1,000 churches planted. I mean, it's mind-boggling the numbers of what God is doing around the world through these agencies. And you and I, we are a part of this together Two years ago, we had Compassion come, and we as a church, by individual families, we sponsored hundreds of kids through our child sponsorship program. Currently, as a church, we have missionaries serving in Swaziland, Belize, Uganda, Ecuador, and Mexico. And when you and I give, we help support and fund the gospel into all of these different nations through these leaders. You see, when a farmer is one to Christ in North Korea... You and I, together, we're a part of that. When a factory worker in Cuba comes to faith in Christ, together, we're part of that. When a child in Pell City comes to faith in Christ, together, we're a part of that. When a church is planted in Las Vegas and in Laos, together, we are a part of that. When an orphan is one to Christ at Safety Net, Together, we are a part of that. When people hear the gospel through our live stream and the camera in the center of the room, which goes out to hundreds of people every week around the world, 
Together, we are a part of that. When those baptismal waters are stirred, together, we are a part of that. When a pastor receives training through our seminaries, together, we are part of that. When a UAB football player bows his knee and gives his life to King Jesus, together, we are a part of that. When a teenager comes to faith in Christ through a D now or through a summer camp, together, we are a part of that. When this room is filled with hundreds of kids every summer during VBS. Together, we are a part of that. Every Sunday morning when we gather and ministry is taking place all over this campus, together, we are a part of that. You see, there is no greater return on your investment than when you invest in the kingdom of God. God takes your money and he multiplies it. He sends it all over the world for the sake of the gospel. You see, there's nothing better than investing in eternity. Here's what happens. When you give, someone comes to faith in Christ. And then they get to lead someone to Christ. And then they get to lead someone to Christ. And then they get to lead someone to Christ. And it all started because of your gift. Do you see how that works? God multiplies it. And thousands of years, if the Lord tarries and doesn't return first, there may be people coming to faith in Jesus who have yet to have been born. But because of your faithful giving now, the gospel marches forward, the mission goes on, and you are a part of investing in something that's bigger than yourself. There are eternal rewards that are coming to those who are faithful. I don't know about you, but I want to leverage everything I have for the glory of King Jesus. I want to see as many people as possible come to faith in Christ through my life, but also through my giving, which comes down to the impact point, and it's this. Give sacrificially to the advance of the Great Commission. We all together give sacrificially. Why? Because Jesus sacrificed himself for us. The gospel is our motivation for why we give. And we want to see more people come to know Jesus. And so we financially give so that those who don't know him might come to know Jesus Christ. Is there anything better than investing in that? Because God is generous, and he proves it through a blood-stained cross. And when you look to Jesus, you see the generosity of God on display. And so now, as those who have been rescued, as those who have been ransomed in the gospel, we now get to join God in his mission of spreading the good news of Jesus Christ.